Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, November 21st, 2021. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia, Jenna Tessa Fox, and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Jenna Tessa Fox. Jenna has been writing about theater for many years for numerous publications, including Playbill, Broadway World, Time Out, HowlRound. She's a voting member of the Drama Desk Awards and a contributor to Broadway Radio. Hello, Pete. Uh, Hello, Jenna. Good morning. How are you doing? (laughs) Obviously, I'm a little tongue-tied that you're here. So excited to hear your voice again. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invite. (laughs) Also, this is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at FollowSpotPhoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. So we have a very, very busy, busy week as we've seen so much to be seen on stage and off stage on the <laughs> silver screen. And we're going to talk about that in a bit. But let's start with uh, this week's opening at the American Airline Theaters of Trouble in Mind. So, Peter, tell us what you think about this uh, play. Well, um, the play has become famous because back in 1955, uh, it was done off-Broadway. And when you think about it, that's really early for off-Broadway. Yeah, Three Penny Opera had already opened and all that. But off-Broadway wasn't really a viable uh, commercial place at that point, the way it became in the 60s and then wasn't in the 70s and beyond. But um, it was amazing when one thinks of it that Alice Childress got an offer to bring it to Broadway. And she said, OK. And they said, here's what we want done. And she said, no. No, I don't want those changes made. And um, she she could have had a play on Broadway. She could have been the first black female to have a play on Broadway, which um, had to wait four years until Raisin in the Sun came along by Lorraine Hansberry. So uh, the story behind the play is, is quite interesting. And the play itself, the play itself does hold water. It does go on a little long, I'll grant you. But nevertheless, The points are very well made, points that may seem overly familiar now. I mean, how could the play not be dated from the vantage point that it's over 60 years old? But 
but it's still <clears throat> message worth hearing about how blacks are treated in the theater because that's what it's about. Um, we're on we're on a stage and uh, people are meeting to rehearse a play, and um, the blacks um, have to play parts that are very stereotypical, and they're not happy about it. And people have various reactions to it. Uh, Chuck Cooper, who was terrific beyond belief, um, is somebody who wants to keep the peace. That's very important to him. You know, he knows that if he um, stirs the pot that um, people aren't going to hire him anymore and he needs to um, have that happen. He needs to get the jobs. But uh, Lashans um, is is the leading lady and does have the imperiousness of a leading lady in the best sense of the word. She's really, really quite wonderful in her part. So she has a way of looking at things, too. So that's what's going on here. There's a white director, needless to say. Michael Zagan uh, is his name. Um, I guess he's famous because he got entrance applause. I don't know who he is. Um, I guess he has some TV and um, movie career. Does anybody know? Yeah, he's uh, got a television show. Uh-huh. So anyway, um, and I think he's very good. He's 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 very young and he has that youthful um, attitude towards directing that uh, th- that he really believes he knows everything and he's going to solve every problem and all that goes with that, which um, is far easier said than done. So um, the play goes on. And I do think that um, when the curtain comes down at the end of act one, you expect when it goes up for act two, you are going to see a full set. You're going to see the actual play in progress uh, as seen um, in the real theater. I thought that was going to happen when the curtain came down, because when you go into the theater, the curtain is up. So I figured that's what was going to happen. Uh, And I would have liked to have seen the play itself, but that is what Alice Childress had in mind. Uh, She wanted to continue what was going on here. New characters come in and, um, and of course, this contention. Well, um, it's a three act play, but uh, you can tell the third act is uh, glued on to the second act. And uh, so there's only one intermission. And um, by the time when it really gets going, it's just been a little too long. And I had to wonder if some of the problems had to do with cutting the play rather than the political nature of the play. I don't know. We'll never know. But the fact remains that when this play is good, it's really good. And when Lashans and Chuck Cooper are talking, it's really, really, really good. All right. Michael, what did you think? Oh, first of all, Peter, uh, Michael Zagan, I, I guess it's primarily the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Is that what that, it is? That people record, but also Boardwalk Empire, The Walking Dead, Girls, How to Make It in America, and FX's Rescue Me. So that's Michael Zagan's uh, uh, TV credits. Uh, he's pretty he's, good. Yeah, yeah. He, mm-hmm. yeah he, um, I, I, you know, as you know, I don't watch TV any more than you do, so I don't. <laughs> but he, he, he really was great in this, and the, the whole cast is amazing. What a, what a phenomenal, extraordinary work this is to to think that that she did write it then and uh i'm fascinated it would be uh, i'm sure that somehow one could research exactly why uh what changes she was asked to make mm. for broadway and refused to um if i understand correctly it all it had to do with primarily the third act which is where everything comes to a head um wh- what the basic situation is they're, they're, they're rehearsing this play and everything is going pretty well uh but then um the lachance character of Willetta brings up uh, she she's very uncomfortable with a plot point that involves um, giving up her son to to the law, you know, uh, uh, 
not, um, you know, especially knowing the history of, of lynchings. Uh, and then, then that is discussed uh, in at, at, at length. Uh, so I, she she thinks she seems to think that that would not happen and she can't justify it doing it. Um, and so that's when she comes to loggerheads with the director and everything uh, kind of spirals downward. But um, I wonder exactly what she was asked to change, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, the, uh, without changing the entire point of the whole play. Um, and maybe it would have changed the whole the whole point of the whole play. And that's why she didn't do it. Um, I, I do wonder if, if any statements on that survive. Uh, that, that would be something very interesting to to research. But here's. Um, Here's something I noticed that I don't, I don't think anyone else has commented on yet. Uh, the director, we see him going out of his way to be very, very polite and professional uh, and positive with with all of the black actors. He even he continually refers to Willetta as darling and other words like that. But there's another character of a, a white stage manager uh, played by Alec Mikowitz, and the director treats him like crap. Mm. And I, I couldn't help thinking that that is, we're supposed to think that maybe that's his basic nature, this director, uh, of being very imperious and condescending to people who he, think are, he thinks are below him. And we're just not seeing him do that to the Black actors because he knows he couldn't dare do it. Uh, so I thought that was a very interesting way that the author wrote those characters and the way they're played here. I think this is, you know, I, I'm often down on the roundabout theater, but I think this is one of the absolute best things they have ever done. Uh, choosing Charles Randolph Wright as the director w- was uh, turned out to be brilliant. The cast is uniformly superb. Even Don Stevenson, of whom I'm not always a fan, was just perfect uh, as one of the actors and and then everyone else, uh, Simon Jones, who uh, I think was almost unrecognizable to me until I looked at the program and realized who he was. Uh, Brandon Michael Hall, Jessica Francis Dukes, Danielle Campbell, the aforementioned Chuck Cooper and the aforementioned Michael Zagan and LaChance. LaChance really, really grabs this role Um uh, you know, by the horns or whatever, and and brings it home. She just digs into it so beautifully, and it's such an authentic and heartfelt performance. I absolutely loved it, and it's quite an achievement that this play has finally come to Broadway. So uh, I also saw Trouble in Mind, and uh, it was interesting to hear what you're saying about the director because mm. uh, he, he was so frustrating to me because he. He, he seemed like such a child and that uh, he was having his temper tantrums, then the explosion about his ex-wife and, right, and right. all the other things that he was saying. It, it was obvious to me that he was a sexist and a racist and that that character and that uh, I was surprised that so many people gave him the power to uh, uh, to go on with that. Um, but they... Uh, this showed a part of uh, – I'm, I'm not always a big fan of plays that are about the theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, I, I think the – I them. <laughs> 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 I, 
aside from a chorus line, uh, <laughs> plays plays that are about the theater are not my favorite thing. But I really saw that this uh, this the, the cast protecting one another was a really uh, in, endearing thing, yeah, and I really so loved I really mm-hmm. loved that aspect of they uh, they all walked in as, as strangers and became a family, and I thought that was a that was really really wonderful i think lachance is uh uh it's gonna be you know accepting some sort of awards <laughs> in the spring for this I, I think that it's it's a it it's just you can't say that the the, the play was written for her because it was written many no. many years before <laughs> no, she was, was she was born <laughs> but uh, it just seems like it is it just it's just really wonderful Another wonderful aspect. Go oh, ahead, Michael. No, uh, no, just another wonderful aspect of it is that it's so funny in the yeah. first mm-hmm. half or mm-hmm. two thirds, really. Mm-hmm. And then, so you know, mm-hmm. so then when they when everything goes to hell, uh, it's all the more effective. What were you going to say, Peter? Oh, um, that um, going to Phantom recently, um, it occurred to me that several of those people on stage were not born. When the show opened. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Oh, that hurts. <laughs> well, Jenna, I know that you, you know, you were born when Phantom had its 10th anniversary. So, uh, are you sure? <laughs> I, this is uh, tra- dangerous, dangerous ground. Was it 15? Days. It was the 15th anniversary or 20th anniversary. I'll allow okay. that one. 20th. I'll okay. allow 20th. <laughs> so, my last thing I want to say about Trouble in Mind is is uh, we have to appreciate Chuck Cooper. I oh, mean, yeah. Oh, I, I, think, I think we do. <laughs> I, I mean, so. and that's it's the just, law, isn't it? He's, it is the law that you have yes. to. I mean, Chuck Cooper. Can do I no mean, wrong. And I, I remember seeing Chuck in Amazing Grace uh, mm-hmm. and not a show that I particularly was fond of, but he's one of those people. He gets on stage. I can't keep my eyes off of him. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. just so great at everything mm-hmm. he does. Mm-hmm. Really, really loved mm-hmm. him. Can I interject here to tell my yeah, favorite of Cooper story? Sure. Going to see Prince of Broadway. He emerges wearing Tevye's iconic outfit with the talit and the, mm-hmm. the kippah mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. And the audience cracked up as he uh-huh. walked out and began doing uh-huh. Dear God. You made many, many poor uh-huh. people. <laughs> Three minutes later, they were screaming, cheering, stamping their feet. His take on <clears throat> If I Were a Rich Man was so, so iconic. It was fantastic. Everyone who was laughing within three minutes was cheering and screaming for him. It was such a wonderful moment. Oh, I, it sure is. I mean, yes. I wish uh, that I had seen what you had seen. Um, my audience accepted it at face value and had no problem with it. But yeah, when you see an audience turn around like that, that is a thrilling, thrilling experience. So I'm it delighted is. you told me about that. Um, yes. It was such a wonderful moment. I really, I would love to really see him play Tevya in a production mm-hmm. of Fiddler. Mm-hmm. And I know New York has had its uh, more than enough productions of Fiddler <laughs> in the last few years, but I'm still pushing. Mm-hmm. I want to see Chuck Cooper play Tevya. Oh, he was wonderful. Well, uh, just as I said, uh, Chuck can do anything. And I think that mm-hmm. maybe we should uh, see if Chuck can play Diana. Oh, uh, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> so Diana also opened up uh, recently on Broadway and Peter has gotten a chance to see it. The th- uh, Michael, Jenna and I are going to be seeing it uh, sometime this week or in the future. So, Peter, tell us uh, what can we expect at Diana? 
Well, the word train wreck has been used quite a bit for this show. I have heard that expression over and over and over again. And uh, on Friday, I went to um, 54 Below because they were having a party for Sierra Borges and Julian Ovenden. They have a new album uh, called Together at a Distance because she recorded in um, New York and he recorded in London and um, Electronic uh, Magic put them together. So um, I ran to Mark Shenton, who's um, a, a London critic, and I said to him, um, uh, we were talking, and so he mentioned that he saw Diana, and I said, how is it? I'm going tonight. And he says, it's a car crash. And I <laughs> said, well, that's better than what I've heard, because I've heard train wreck. <laughs> so, um, frankly, I think it's a fender bender. I do not understand the hatred for this show um, at all, at all. I'm, I am not saying it's a great musical. I'm not saying anything of the kind, but I don't think it should be dismissed out of hand as being ridiculous. So um, when uh, and by the way, uh, there is a terrific performance, terrific performance by um, Gianna DeWall as uh, Diana. And to be frank, part of the reason she's so good is because Joe DiPietro, in writing this book, has calibrated this woman's growth from a kindergarten teacher all the way up to who she was. And um, that's something that really should be acknowledged here, that the writing of that character, the arc of that character is very successful. All right. So she comes out and she starts singing pop rock. And I'm thinking, no, this is fine. You know, for one thing, I know uh, from reading at the time that she was a great fan of the Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals, and I wish there were a reference to it, frankly. And David Bryan's music, um, I'm not saying it was intentionally meant to sound like Andrew Lloyd Webber, but it often does. There are many echoes of the Vedder, especially with the chorus, um, and who have choreography that is so awful um i can't begin that's that's a train wreck the choreography but anyway um she's very 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 good um in the part and hearing her sing this andrew lloyd Webber type music is very right for her but 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 prince charles has the same music and the whole point of prince charles's character is that he really is quite the stick i mean he has grown up in this household where there's protocol and there's all sorts of things expected of him and what have you so his music should not be uh in the same vein you might say wait wait wait. you know charles is a baby boomer he was there for the rock era his music can be rock too no no because again the whole point of him is that he is very much of a different generation even though he was born in what 50 51 something i don't know when he was born but anyway you get the point so um and also the queen has pop rock uh too when she comes on played by judy k by the way um by the way judy k um when she got her second tony award after phantom of the opera and nice work if, if you can get it um when she was swinging on a chandelier said chandeliers have been very good to me well there are two sh two chandeliers in this show and um this show is not the third jewel of the triple crown for her chandeliers believe me but um she also has to play barbara cartland um who is um a step grandmother i think to uh, diana anyway <clears throat> which um is i guess there for comic relief but um so late in the show, Queen Elizabeth does have a song that sounds like it should be Queen Elizabeth's music when she talks about Prince Philip. And we, uh, obliquely, here's the mystery of this show. There is no Prince Philip anywhere. Anywhere. He doesn't even show up for his kid's wedding. Are you kidding me? I mean, he's, they just don't deal with him whatsoever. 
well. So that's a problem. Um, <clears throat> Also, there's a little bit of Moliere in this show. You know how uh, in Moliere, the servants know more than the um, the people they're serving. Um, you get a little bit of that from the chorus in this show. So now, of course, Camilla Parker Bowles is in here, too. And the thing is, this is treated very differently than from what you'd expect. It is true that indeed um, Diana and Camilla will have their uh, issues and they will come to a head. But what's so interesting about what happens between Charles and Camilla is that they're very much at home with the situation that they have to cheat, that um, they both have. Um, well, he's going to have a spouse at this point uh, in the play. He does not, but she does. And they're very much at home with the, um, the situation. They don't seem to be guilty about it. They're taking the happiness where they can find it. And so that's kind of refreshing. It may even be true, but um, nevertheless, usually we see um, catfights from the very beginning, and that doesn't quite happen. So um, that's very um, good. The fact that celebrity has its price is very well um, taken. There's a smart moment where Diana is in a a payphone booth, you know, those cute little red things that um, they maybe they still have in England. I don't know, uh-huh. with cell phones. But anyway, and the, the photographers, um, all the paparazzi come all around her to take a And that's really great because she's trapped. You know, there's nothing she can do. So I thought that was a smart idea uh, to have that happen. Um, so so, you know, again, there, there are assets to this production, and I don't think it should be written off um, that easily. I also thought it was interesting that um, when they were um, getting married, uh, the song stresses I will rather than I do. And um, that's a slight difference. And um, and it's a very good one. So um, we never get a feeling, though, of why particularly they thought of all the women in the world, Diana should be the one. Um, she had a, you know, she was Lady Di from some sort of, um, not, of course, a royal family like these people are. But but still, I mean, it, it, we, we need to know more why that happened. So that was a big um, problem. Um, she has this laugh of disbelief when he says, I love you. She laughs um, as if to say, how can this be happening? How can he possibly love me? He barely knows me. This turns out to be a problem because much later in the show, there is so much talk about her saying, I love him so much. Why? Why? We never see any reason why she should have loved him at the beginning. And then he gets terrible to her as time goes on. Okay, fine. So, um, so that's, um, that's a problem. So is the fact that um, she doesn't really realize that Camilla is so much in his life and she gets the impression that um, he's going to drop her. And then you get the old bit where he's on the phone with Camilla and she walks in, you know, that's, that's never a good thing when somebody, you know, notice in Sweeney Todd that, um, Toby suspects that something's going on. Now, he doesn't walk in on them doing what they're doing. He suspects it because he's putting two and two together. That's much more interesting. So, um, so, so, um, and it's, it's, Aaron Davey is very good, by the way, as Camilla, um, who, you know, is so wonderfully, um, well, she's sad about the situation, but she's not mad about the situation. I mean, mad in both sense of the words. I mean, she doesn't go crazy and she's not angry. Um, she does the best she can with it. Um, but um, Diana is um, no 
Jackie Onassis, um, well, Jackie Kennedy, I should say, um, <laughs> because, of course, we, we have since learned that Jackie looked the other way quite a bit. And um, and Diana can't quite do that. So um, but the real strength of the show comes when we see that Diana is genuinely sincere about doing good. She doesn't just want to wave her hand a little bit back and forth uh, to the people down below. She wants to do good. And I am serious about this. There is a scene in the second act that really brought tears to my eyes. And I mean that. And a show that can do that does have worth. So, um, uh, you know, I just wonder, though, um, I know a lot of people have a real fascination with the royal family. I do not. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm more impressed by people who act nobly rather than people who are supposedly noble by birth. I mean, it's been a long time since these people have been in, uh, in power in the way they've been. And I mean, you know, genetically, is it really so significant? I mean, if we hear the famous thing that people can't relate to the problems of show people, how can we relate to the problems of um, um, royal people? People who have a very nice life, you know, what I mean, so um, so so that's a big problem as well. One of the uh, biggest problems, too, is the fact that late in the show, late in the show, Charles concedes you're a wonderful mother. Well, we'd like to see that from aside from seeing a little little baby in um, blue, uh, baby blue bunting. Um, we never see the two princes. Never. I don't, this show has a, a thing against princes because I'm telling you, <laughs> no Philip, no Harry, no William. I mean, it, it would be it, people love seeing mothers and kids on stage. I mean, here was a good opportunity to have her, you know, really showing to be a loving mother, and just to have it said later on, um, you're a wonderful mother, without any showing us any evidence of that. You know, that's really um, a big problem as well. So um, I'm also curious why this whole this whole thing when he says divorces out of the question why is divorce out of the question for this family when indeed one of their forebears if indeed i i don't know english history i know there was a lot of coups <laughs> and what have you but henry the eighth started a whole religion based on his having a divorce so why is divorce out of this question maybe because people? maybe because there was a lot of problems with that <laughs> Ah, ah, yes, indeed. Yes, that's a, minor, that's a very minor good, problems. Very, very good rebuttal. And a street over, uh, we can uh, find out all about that. So that's uh, that's very true. There's talk about staying in the relationship for the children. Well, you know, again, you know, where are the children? You know, so um, so that's a, a problem as well. So um, but I'm telling you, this this lady grows beautifully and the writing is behind that. And I think that's really significant. So I don't think it's remotely as I, I know I've said a lot of negative things. I get that. I mean, I, I understand that I'm not this. my saying I've seen thousands worse. It's not a quotation they're going to use in ads. I grant you that. <laughs> but 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 still, I, I don't understand the dismissive hatred that this show has got, even with all the problems, because just just for that arc and just for that second act scene that brought tears to my eyes, I think attention must be paid. Okay, so uh, Jenna, Michael, and I will uh, let you know if we get that same tear in our eye. Okay, as it, as it rolls around this week, and uh, I, I've seen. Um, Lots of uh, experienced theater people come to Diana's defense in the last week. Which, oh, have you? Which <laughs> is uh, very interesting to me because uh, it, this is something that was uh, – they did a pro tape uh, without an audience, and it's been playing on 
Netflix, and uh, it got a lot of hate. But a lot of, many people have said that the pro tape is not very good because there's no audience in it, and it leaves it very hollow. Yeah, and so yeah. It, it 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 went in under. Uh, uh, dire circumstances, people thought that this was going to get killed, and I've seen a lot of people rallying for it. So, yeah, it- um, the, you may know there's a very famous um, film of Mary Martin and Wilbur Evans uh, doing South Pacific in London, and um, right, right. the whole show. And everybody, uh, when when you hear about it, you get very excited, say, "Oh, this is going to be wonderful seeing the actual production." But because there's no audience, it seems so. Daryl, Michael, you seem to know about this. Yes, you, know you do too. Do you I know what I mean? Completely. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So that is a flaw. I mean, theater is a give and take between yeah the, <laughs> on, on both sides of the proscenium, <laughs> and when you remove the audience, you really lose that. I mean, I love watching the Into the Woods pro shot from the eighties, mm. where uh, Joanna Gleason can't leave the stage after moments in the woods because the audience is cheering so much. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine that moment without the audience cheering, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. forcing her to walk back and forth across the stage, waiting for the applause to dissipate so she can exit? Now, that said, if you get to watch one of those things in a, a large group of people, then then they sometimes tend to work really well. But how often do you have that opportunity? Mm-hmm. True, true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've also heard people say that uh, Diana is this generation's Rocky Horror so ah. <laughs> interesting uh, ah. thought about that. This week on Broadway is being supported by Today Ticks. I've gotten to see so many more shows than I normally would because of how quickly and easily Today Ticks makes getting tickets. They have amazing prices for some of the best theater I've ever seen. Today Ticks is your one stop shop for theater tickets with the best value on tickets to Broadway and beyond. Just download the app or visit todayticks.com to find a show that you want to see. Getting tickets is easier than ever. With the Today Ticks app, you can just check out in 30 seconds and pick up your tickets with ease. I'm looking at the Today Ticks website right now, and I just wanted to give you some of the affordable Broadway and off-Broadway shows that you can see. $26 for Trouble in Mind. Tickets starting at $30 for Trevor the Musical. $39 for Deborah Messing and Birthday Candles. $59 for Waitress, $59 for Company, $31 for Carolina Change. These are the best shows that you can see in New York right now for very low prices. Book your tickets months in advance or even day of if you're feeling spontaneous. Today Ticks gives you access to exclusive pre-sales, limited time offers, digital lottery programs to sold out shows, and day of discounted tickets. Of course, Today Ticks isn't just for Broadway and London's West End. You can also find Today Ticks in cities across the country and around the world, including Chicago, L.A., D.C., San Francisco, Sydney, and more. See that show you've always wanted to see or discover something new that you'll love just as much with Today Ticks. Go to todayticks.com slash broadwayradio and use the promo code BROADWAYRADIO to get $10 off for your first Today Ticks purchase. That's promo code BROADWAYRADIO all one word, at todaytix.com slash broadwayradio for $10 off your first ticket purchase. todaytix.com slash broadwayradio. We'd like to thank Today Ticks for continuing to support Broadway Radio. All right, so uh, Diana, which has been uh, playing on Netflix, has been joined by uh, this little... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> movie <laughs> musical that uh, contains 
I, I just think the four of us are the only four people not in it. Uh, <laughs> I said that to James. How did I put it? I said, nobody you know is not in this movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're, so we're talking about Tick, Tick, Boom, uh, the Jonathan Larson musical directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda. That guy's got a future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Jenna, why don't you start us off with uh, Tick, Tick, Boom, the movie. Yeah, Tick, Tick, Boom, the movie. I mean... There is so many impressive things about this, but I would say arguably the most impressive thing about the film is that it got made at all. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Jonathan Larson wrote it wrote this piece for himself to perform as a one-person rock monologue with backup singers and a band, and there are clips of that available on YouTube. I really encourage people track down those clips because they're fascinating to see what the show was and what it became. Then David Auburn expanded it to three performers and a band. But the structure has always been very narrative heavy. It tells as much as it shows, which works. I mean, David Auburn's a Pulitzer winning playwright. Jonathan Larson's a Pulitzer winning composer and lyricist and playwright. So, you know, we're not dealing with weak uh, writers here. Um, So, you know, on stage, the two supporting players play a range of roles. The set was very minimal. The band was right there on stage. So there was very little about this that said this can easily be translated to film. Uh, So it really cheers to Lin-Manuel Miranda, who directed, and screenwriter Stephen Levinson for thinking outside the box and making a movie that is very explicitly about a week in the life of Jonathan Larson rather than a composer named John, who just so happens to have written a musical called Superbia, like Jonathan Larson did. Mm -hmm. Um, Transitioning the story from stage to film really lets us see Larson's New York City and all the struggles he was facing. Uh, You know, the song No More is a fun comparison between John's squalid East Village six-floor walk-up and his best friend's new Upper East Side deluxe apartment in the sky. And Larson's lyrics do a great job of depicting each space. But then actually seeing them in film, in living color, it adds an extra layer to the song, and it raises the stakes for the characters. The song ends with this great shot of elevator doors for this luxury building closing on Andrew Garfield's smiling face, and then smash cut to subway doors closing on his face as he stands there looking wretched. It's not a subtle contrast, but it's really effectively done. And again, something you can only do on film. It would not work on stage. Uh, The cast, I mentioned Andrew Garfield. Uh, The cast is wonderful. I don't want to spoil all of the cameos because I know mm-hmm. plenty of people haven't seen it yet. And I hope you get to laugh and scream as much as I, as much as I did. And my friends did, I got to see it down at Alamo draft house, see it in a theater. If you can with a bunch of theater people who will yes. laugh and scream. Yes. 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 Oh, it was joyous. We were just cheering. You know, the song I'm talking about. If you, if you know, you know, um, screaming, cheering. It was a wonderfully theatrical experience. Again, like we were just saying, being in a room of people experiencing everything at once it makes a difference. Um, you know, try not to blink because you'll you'll miss someone famous if you do. Uh, someone on Twitter commented, anyone who sneezed on 46th Street in the last 15 years is in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Andrew Garfield is just shockingly good as Larson. And I shouldn't say that about a, what, 
two or three time Oscar nominee and a, a Tony winner and mm-hmm. t- multiple Tony nominee, but who knew he could sing like that? I mean, he throws himself into the role wholeheartedly. There are no winks to the audience. He is just in that role completely. Uh, yeah, I didn't know he could even carry a tune, much less sing, but he really does sing wonderfully. Uh, Alexandra Ship does some wonderful work as John's long-suffering dancer girlfriend, Susan. But I will complain here, just like in the stage version, she doesn't get to be anything more than the girlfriend. She has no real story arc of her own. I can sort of allow this. This is John's story from John's perspective. So uh, I'll let it slide. But uh, she really, does she even need a name? She's just the girlfriend. That's a side quibble. I'm a little uh, surprised to hear that, Jenna, uh, because they, you know, it it is if you even if you feel that way, it's much fleshed out from the show. Mm-hmm. They they did at least add a lot about her her career aspirations, and I think there's more focus on that. But I guess you still think it's not enough. Uh, I mean, again, it's this is what Jonathan Larson wrote, and he's writing about his own experience from his perspective, and she was. I'm not. I don't know the actual performer's name who he was dating at the time, but yeah, he's writing about her in relation to him. So I get it. Um, maybe it's just my loud outspoken feminism that just gets tired of seeing women in stories reduced to their relationship to men. But yes, I agree. We do get to see, you know, again, something that we didn't see in the stage version. We actually see her dancing, which we never saw. We right. just are exactly. told yeah. she's a dancer. Now we see her in a dance troupe and we see how good she is. We yeah. see that she is talented and it, it puts her in a, what's the word I'm looking for? It compares her life and her choices to John's better because now we've seen what she's capable of and that she's having the same struggles he is and she is making her decisions, which plays into what decisions will John make. So, yes, I do appreciate finally getting to see Susan dancing. That is a (laughs) lovely touch. Um, Robin de Jesus. I mean, the role of Michael can be played, I've seen it played any number of ways, very over the top, very downplayed. He goes for downplaying the role, which I think works really well. We see the dynamic actor he used to be, and now the downtrodden businessman that he is fighting for a sense of balance inside of him. And I think he really conveys that internal battle very nicely. Um, Joshua Henry, Vanessa Hudgens, they play Larson's friends and collaborators and backup singers. They get some really great moments to shine. And it's always wonderful to hear Joshua Henry sing. Uh, Hudgens gets a great moment. She gets part of come to your senses late in the show. And I will come back to that because uh, I do have a couple of quibbles, I mean, beyond uh, complaining about reducing a woman, not reducing a woman, that's not fair, but having a woman be only in relation to a guy. Um, Screenplay adds a conflict for Larson. I'm trying not to spoil too much here. Um, It adds a conflict that was not in the stage version, and I understand why it was added for a sense of urgency and immediacy. I just don't think it overly helps the the overall tension of the story when the focus is on john's dilemma about remaining in theater it feels like the stakes are not only higher but more universal adding in this additional creative conflict it feels like gilding the lily in a way it didn't feel necessary although i will acknowledge it adds a sense of urgency in a way um, I just don't think it was necessary. And I wonder how the piece would be 
without that additional conflict. Um, and then a major song, oh, Come to Your Senses, all, since I already mentioned Hudgens singing it, Come to Your Senses goes from being a solo late in the show to a duet. Mm. And I also think this is a detriment to the overall film. Uh, and maybe this is me unfairly comparing the film to the stage version, because I still get chills remembering, you know, sitting in the Jane Street Theater, low those many years ago, watching Raul Esparza's face <laughs> as the light slowly came up on him, watching uh, Amy Spanger belt out that song, and the relief flooding his face, the joy, recognizing that he's written something good, and he's written something powerful, and Bless Amy Spanger. She knew how to take and give the energy. So as the lights moved up on him so we could see his reaction to the song, she would tone it down just enough so that she could share the energy with him. I loved that moment. It was just, like I said, chills. It was fantastic. And that that is a quintessentially theatrical moment. It's hard to replicate it on film. And they don't try. They they completely change what the song is about in a way. And to me, it wasn't nearly as powerful a moment. And I think, I think it was, it was meant to be as powerful, but it just didn't work. And again, I could just be unfairly comparing it to the stage version because I have preconceived notions. I will fully acknowledge that. Um, yeah. Uh, and another, one other complaint I did joke, everyone on 46th street, everyone who ever sneezed on 46th street was in the film. 44th street. 44th Street, 46th, Jane Street. Well, restaurant Row, you know. Restaurant Row, there. exactly. <laughs> but, you know, I, I really do wish with all of the cameos they were able to fit in, I did not notice if Raul Esparza or Amy Spanger or Jerry Dixon or Natasha Diaz or what Joey McIntyre, uh, Molly Ringwald stepped in for a while, and all the people who did the stage version on the Jane Street, uh, none of them were there. I didn't see them. And I noticed I, that also. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I loved seeing all the cameos, but I kind of missed seeing these people uh, who had made the show what it was when it was running off Broadway. I really wish, I mean, for all I know, uh, you know, offers were made and they just couldn't make it work, but I really wish we'd seen them. Uh, you know, the film really works. It is a wonderful debut for Lin-Manuel Miranda. It is a love letter not just to the theater community and to New York and to all the struggling artists trying to make it, but to Larson himself. I mean, Miranda has cited Larson as an inspiration any number of times. So I really hope we get a director's cut with full versions of the songs because there are a couple bridges and verses missing here and there. And I would really love to hear the full versions and just get to hear like, like those uh, additional, what is it, uh, symphonic recordings with the, uh, <laughs> you know, like, like they used to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I checked one- on that note. I checked YouTube, and uh, I guess the whole soundtrack is there, and it has things like Joshua Henry singing yes. "Green Green Green Dress," yes, which is yes. one of the cut songs. Yes. So I think there's a lot there that's not actually in the movie. I need to get the soundtrack uh, and listen to the whole thing. I actually stayed for the all of the credits, hoping for a post-credit scene. So Joshua Henry's take <laughs> uh, take on green green dress plays over the uh, the closing credits, and God, that was wonderful. Yeah, uh, just Joshua Henry can do everything. Um, yeah, it's it's a wonderful show. It's wonderful that it's on Netflix, that it's accessible to everyone who has a Netflix subscription to watch. 
uh, highly encourage that. But if you get a chance to see it in a theater, please go bring your friends so that you can have as close to a theatrical experience as possible and then try to count all the cameos. It's a real treat. The uh, list of cap, uh, cameos uh, slate uh, yes. has done an exhaustive list of all the Broadway cameos and mm-hmm. Tic Tic Boom. I have a link to that in the show notes so that you can check that out. Uh, as Jenna mentioned, maybe you want to watch the movie first before you spoil it because this is, it's really wonderful. It really so, is. So, uh, Michael, what's your take on Tic Tic Boom? Oh, gosh, I have so much to say. I'll, I'll try to be brief. Uh, first, let me say, I, I guess I feel like a, a little bit of a personal connection to this piece because, first of all, I, I worked for Backstage, the newspaper, not very long, only about a year, but it happened to be during the time that Rent was being put up at New York Theatre Workshop, and oh. I had to write Jonathan Larson's obit. Oh. For, for backstage at the time, I'll oh. confess not having ever heard of him before. So I had to just look everything up and, and write it. Uh, I mean, it wasn't an in-depth obit or anything, but it was just something to acknowledge his passing. So that was the first thing. And then I got to interview uh, Tim Weil, uh, who mm. was the musical director of Rent uh, for Playbill one of the few articles I ever wrote for Playbill. And he went into uh, pretty much how they had to, uh, after Jonathan died unexpectedly, he wasn't obviously able to do any of the finishing touches on Rent. So he talked about how he and the rest of the creative uh, team had to get together and, and do what they thought Jonathan would have done to get Rent into its final form. Uh, so then so there were all of that happened. And then Tech Tick Boom came along at a time when I was living in the same building as Raul Esparza. So there was that connection. And then I got to interview all of that creative team of the stage version of Tick Tick Boom, including Stephen Aremus, who was the musical director, and, and uh, all those other people. And then uh, I was invited to the release party for the cast album of Tick, Tick, Boom, which was to have taken place on September 11th, mm-hmm. 2001. And that didn't happen. So there was that tragedy, uh, you know, on top of the tragedy of Larson's death, which is what the show was about. And it was just, uh, I mean, for all of those reasons, I, I just feel like a, a really close connection to it. Um, I, uh, uh, Jenna, although I know what you mean, I, I have to disagree about come to your senses. And, and here's why. Uh, uh, in brief, the setup is that so there are these two, I guess, major female characters in the show. There's Susan, Jonathan's girlfriend, and then this character, Caressa, who is a performer who is appearing in the workshop of of his superbia musical. And what it's set up is that uh, even more so in the movie that John uh, has not been able to write her big uh, 11 o'clock number, which turns out to become to your senses. He's got, he's blocked and he's not able to write it. And eventually he has a breakthrough and the way that's done in the movie while he's actually, while he's swimming uh, is just brilliant and and incredibly cinematic and beautifully filmed and acted. Uh, but anyway, uh, the point is supposed to be that um, that Caressa and Susan are in a sense the same person, just uh, because this song that 
Jonathan winds up writing for Caressa to sing really mirrors what's going on with his relationship with Susan as they're basically breaking up because, because of, uh, you know, they want different things out of life. So um, as Jenna mentioned, the, the, the stage version of Tick, Tick, Boom that was put together after Jonathan's death by David Auburn and Stephen Remus and all those people only has three performers. And so uh, both Caressa and Susan were played by Amy Spanger, but obviously uh when they made the movie, they, they were not going to do it that way unless they just did a, a film of the, the stage production directly. So they, they were going to have two different actors playing Caressa and Susan. Uh, but I remember, here, here's, here's the interesting thing. They, uh, they did a production of Tick, Tick, Boom at Wagner College some years ago. And uh, I told Raul about it. And I mentioned to him that they had added a couple uh, more actors and including uh, having two, two different people play Caressa and Susan. And he said he thought that was a mistake because he, th- he thought that they're essentially supposed to be the same person in Jonathan's mind in terms of this song that he's writing. So I think making Come to Your Senses a duet for those two in the movie was an absolutely brilliant solution. Uh, and I think it brought that point home really, really well. And I also appreciate the fact uh, that also Jenna alluded to that during the performance, so it cuts back and forth between those two actresses, but we also see a lot of Andrew Garfield's reaction to it as Jonathan, realizing that this is his breakthrough moment. Um, so I think that was that was really, really, really well done. I, I, I'm astounded by Lin-Manuel Miranda's abilities as a first-time film director. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really think this is one of the best movie musicals ever made. Um, just some brief things about the, the changes in the song stack, uh, which have changed has changed greatly since uh, Jonathan Lawson first started performing this piece as a solo piece called Boho Days. Uh, and, and by the way, a song with that title, was eliminated somewhere along the line, but it's back in the movie. So I'm really glad they put that back. But uh, the Los Angeles Times did a beautiful article on this movie by Ashley Lee. And it says, um, a thorough exploration of Larson's demo tapes, notebooks, and other archival materials at the Library of Congress informed the film's set list. Songs cut from the stage show were added to the movie Boho Days, Play Game, and Swimming, while others were left out, Green Green Dress, See Her Smile, and Sugar, the latter cut down to a jingle. Every included musical number regularly performed on stage with just a few instruments has a uniquely rethought arrangement ranging from just a tweaked drum groove to turn louder than words into an anthemic call to action to a grandiose interpretation of Sunday sung by a star-studded chorus and accompanied by a whopping 61 musicians. Uh, And then also just a little uh, quote from Lin-Manuel Miranda in the New Yorker interview. He said, so the first field trip we took was to the Library of Congress, where Larson's papers are kept, and we found the song Swimming, which Jonathan used to perform as part of Boho Days, but it was cut for the off-Broadway version, and you can see why. It's a total stream of consciousness song. You realize, oh, this only makes sense if you're swimming at that speed. It's actually more cinematic than it's stageable, and 
And so I was like, this is going in our movie. And he goes on and on about that. Uh, I, I, uh, Andrew Garfield, I thought was absolutely astounding. I, I would not have thought before he was cast, I would have not have thought of him for the role of Jonathan Larson, but especially wearing his hair the way he does mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in the movie, he really looks quite a lot like him, you mm-hmm. know, like a slightly Hollywoodized version of mm-hmm, him. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, his, uh, as we know, he can do, uh, even though his natural accent, I would say is very thick British. Uh, he has, been he has already shown on several occasions that he's able to sound 100% American uh, because he I think he has dual citizenship and he grew up here isn't that correct uh, anyway he 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 sounds just as he should sound and Robin De Jesus who has been a guest on our podcast uh, was brilliant as Michael Alexander Ship who with whom I was previously unfamiliar was really wonderful as Susan. And I just think the whole thing is a, almost a miracle, uh, almost a miracle that you have to see. I saw it uh, twice at the Paris theater during its one week run there. And the second time there was a Q and a afterwards with, with Garfield and ship and Ramen de Jesus. So I was really glad to be there. The audience was ecstatic, uh, as you might imagine to have them there to talk about the movie. It's, it's a great achievement and a, Beautiful, wonderful testament to Jonathan Larson. All right. So uh, Peter and Michael got over to see uh, Mornings at 7 at the Theater at St. Clement's with an all-star cast. So, Peter, tell us about this. Well, yes, an all-star cast. But what's really impressive to me is Allie Mills, um, who had to take over in a hurry. In fact, at the performance I attended, um, someone, maybe Dan Wackerman, the director, I don't know him, came out beforehand and said, um, listen, uh, she didn't even know what this play was until a week ago, and uh, she's going to have to carry a book um, at some point during the show. And she did um, for about mm, maybe 190 seconds, of which maybe 35 <laughs> of them, she looked at the book. But I'm telling you, she can, she's in the first scene and she is dynamite right from the get go. So um, considering these, she's the third person to play the role in this production, um, it's amazing to me. She looked like she'd been there from day one. So that's really great. I love this play and always have. Um, it's uh, certainly a slice of life type of play um, set in the Midwest. Um Two houses, not like Romeo and Juliet at all, but uh, <laughs> two houses that are next to each other and uh, the relatives live near each other and they like each other very much. Well, yeah, they do. But um, there is a little bit of conflict because a maiden sister lives with uh, her sister and her husband. And she always had a thing for the husband who had a thing for her, too. But yeah, this is the Midwest. We don't talk about such things. It ain't fitting for polite company. And um, and that's what's going on there. In the other house, we have what is um, a late uh, life crisis where uh, John Rubenstein plays a husband who's suddenly thinking, where did it go? What happened? Why didn't I accomplish more? Um, it's all over now. And uh, he has a real problem with that. And it doesn't bring his wife, Ida, wonderfully played by Alba Cuervo, one of my favorite actresses, um, any pleasure. They have a son uh, who's well into his 30s, maybe 40s. Um, it is established, but I have to admit, I forget. But uh, <laughs> he still lives at home. 
And he's been going with this girl and um, now he's finally going to bring her home, which of course is always a big step in any relationship when you meet the parents. So um, there's a big surprise about this relationship, believe me. Um, but it just ambles along. And um, what's really wonderful is at the end of the play, I will never forget seeing the 1980 production um, that uh, Vivian Madelon, uh, uh, who in real life was a very difficult character, but certainly had sensitivity when directing. And um, directed it beautifully, got a Tony as well. He should have. And um, <laughs> there's a moment at the end where a, a simple line of dialogue turns out to be a big surprise. <laughs> and I remember so vividly, you know, smiling at it. And you could feel the audience. There was a silence in the audience as if to say, what just happened? <laughs> and then the explosion of laughter and um, is just wonderful. It's, you know, if you don't even like the play, don't walk out, stick around because you have to hear this line. It, it really is something you don't see coming. I will say I preferred the way it was directed by Madelon at that moment. Um, it's very hard to describe what I'm talking about without giving anything away. But let's just say in the Madelon production, everybody was happy at what happened in this production. Alma Cuervo's character is not happy with what happened. Um, and uh, that's a little too bad because this is about people who really, really care about each other deeply. And uh, so you have four sisters. I haven't even mentioned uh, the other one played by Patty McCormick, the bad seed. Um, <laughs> well, she's uh, the good seed in this production. She's the most level-headed sister. And um, so they're all quite wonderful. John Rubenstein is so great at being befuddled. And it's so nice to see how he takes out his anxieties and to see his son later taking out his anxieties in the exact same way. He's a chip off the old block. So um, a wonderful production. I hope it moves to Broadway. I know that uh, the Times review was not good, but um, and that's too bad. Uh, but um, I, I do very much applaud this production, and I liked it more than the last production we had on Broadway. All right. Uh, Michael, what's your thoughts? Oh, yeah. First, let me say that moment that Peter uh, <laughs> just went on about, and I completely agree. I thought that moment was also really well done in the 2002 production as uh, played by Elizabeth Franz and directed by Daniel Sullivan. I somehow missed uh, the 1981. Uh, I, I, mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I, it's, it's legendary. It really mm -hmm. is. The, mm -hmm. the, the history of this play is, is so fascinating because the original production only ran from November 30th, 1939 to January 6th. Uh, <laughs> there's a significant date. Uh, mm -hmm. January 6th, 1940. So just a little bit more than a month. And then the uh, the 1980 production ran from April 10th, 1980 to August 16th, 1981. Uh, and then the for what it's worth, the 2002 production was April 21st, 2002 to July 28th, 2002. So it's funny, you would think that you would almost think that the original production would have been the most successful because in some ways, I guess you'd have to say it's a very dated play. Uh, the, the humor is very gentle. It's a, it's a very, it's about normal people, very small lives. You might say it's about family, family conflicts and, and uh, some dysfunctional family things, but also among people who love each other, but have these, 
these little conflicts among them. And there's nothing epic about it. Uh, I, I would say the style of it seems much more of the 30s than of the present day or, or 1980 or 2002 for that matter. So I think that's interesting that uh, that the first production was the least successful. But yes, this one is a joy to see for the cast. I, I was very disappointed when Judith Ivey had to drop out, but I do agree that Allie Mills is terrific in it. And by the time I saw the show, uh, she was completely off book. Uh, everyone all around, just just great. A beautiful, beautiful set. Probably the most elaborate set I've ever seen on the stage at uh, the uh, oh, the no theater question. at yeah. St. Clements. Yeah. yeah. So uh, there's ten, they tend to be more bare bones productions there. But if you're expecting that, that's not what you're going to get. It's a beautiful set mm. uh, by a scenic design by Harry Feiner and lovely direction by Dan Wackerman. I would say absolutely see it. It, it really does the play justice. All right. So that is Mornings at 7 at the Theater at St. Clements. It's running through January 9th, 2022. Next up, uh, Jenna and Peter got down to the public to see Colored Water. Uh, Jenna, why don't you start us off with this? Uh, sure. Uh, before I do that, I really want to encourage people to read uh, Erica Dickerson's Dispenza's Twitter feed. Uh, just yesterday, she posted a great thread about all the great Black women writers who came before her and whose work informed this piece. Uh, please take a look at this thread, read through it, read the work of the writers, and then keep them in mind when you see the play, which you really should do as well. Uh, and the thread also points out the inherent uh, problems, uh, challenges with white critics reviewing theater by writers of color for audiences of color. So there are going to be a lot of things that I missed in this production. I apologize for that in advance. Um, but hopefully <laughs> just, uh, I don't want to say encouraging people to see this should be enough. Obviously it's not enough. Um, but I really encourage people to follow, uh, follow Miss Dickerson Dispenza on Twitter and uh, read through that thread and read through the reading list she recommends. Uh, so her new play, which is running down at the public, is one of the more fascinating pieces I've seen in quite a while. It really evokes uh, Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun in all the best ways. But instead of focusing on the deferred dreams of a Black man, it follows a family of Black women in Flint, Michigan, as the water crisis, the, the toxic water crisis drags on and on. And none of the people in power do anything to fix it. Um, so the play, follow, the family is Marion. She's a widowed union assembly worker at GM, which is uh, dominates the city's uh, employment scene. She lives with her sister, Amy, who is recovering from addiction. And she is also pregnant with her seventh child, having miscarried six times previously. Uh, Big Ma, who is a wonderful variation on Raisins Lena Younger. She's a very quiet but powerful guiding force for the family and has just a brilliant scene uh, in Act Two. And don't want to spoil anything, but you'll know it when you see it and it's breathtaking. Um, Marion also lives with her two daughters, she's who she's now raising alone since the death of her husband, the teenage Reese who is trying to find her place in the world as a queer woman and a black woman and the preteen plum 
who has just finished treatment for leukemia and is still dealing with the fallout from her illness and the fallout from the treatment. All of these women are coping with physical and emotional damage from working in factories and being surrounded by polluted water that the powers that be in the city and the state and the factory even have decided the workers deserve basically to bathe in and drink. Uh, the play's main conflict comes just as Marion gets a promotion and a considerable raise at the factory. Uh, her sister wants to get involved in a class action lawsuit to hopefully get them some clean water. The family needs the money from GM, but they also need clean water and poor black women in Flint, Michigan only get to have one or the other. And the play really puts that in a powerful and very disturbing spotlight. The idea that people have to choose between their income or having clean water to drink. Um, The cast works just beautifully together uh, as a unit. There are several scenes where they sing and move together as one, and then they'll step apart and have moments, individual moments to shine. Uh, Crystal Dickinson plays Marion, nominally the lead, but the way she shares energy with everyone else on stage is just beautifully done. Um, Andrea Patterson is the sister, Amy, uh, her just watching her gradually break down under grief and pressure. She is trying so hard to stay clean, to be a good mother to her unborn child. And the pressure is mounting. She wants a good world for her child to be born into. And she doesn't know if she can make that happen. The helplessness she conveys is breathtaking. Uh, Lizanne Mitchell plays uh, Big Ma. She just steals every moment she's Mm. on stage. Just beautifully done. Uh, Very, Like I said, she is quiet, but very powerful. Uh, She does not have all that many scenes, but when she does, they are great. The kids are fantastic. Lauren F. Walker is smart and very sassy as Reese. Just the energy she gives to this teenager, all the opportunity, the the world she sees before her that she wants to, she wants to find her place in it. She wants to lead it as well. She's trying to find ways to take control. And uh, Walker, again, conveys that beautifully. Alicia Pilgrim is an adult playing a nine-year-old and does a beautiful job. I was genuinely wondering how, I I don't know how Alicia Pilgrim is, uh, and it's none of my business, but she really convincingly plays a child who is wise beyond her years. This kid has suffered and struggled, and she knows what's going on around her, and she really does a beautiful job. Uh, Sorry, I get so tongue-tied just imagining the way she walks across the stage, it's a child's gait, and she does it so beautifully. But then this is also a child who's you know been living with cancer and dealing with all kinds of pain, not just from the cancer itself, but from the treatment. And you know, she has the child's gait, but also someone who's just accustomed to living in pain. It's really impressively done. And I have to give a lot of credit to Candace C. Jones' direction for that. The direction is very leisurely and flowing. It's, uh, I kept thinking this is like a stream that you would have no mm. problem walking across because it looks like it's you know nice, gentle, flowing water. 
And there's a dangerous tide underneath that you just don't notice. She really brings out that dangerous tide underneath. She takes her time with Dickerson Dispenza's language to really strong effect. Uh, the set, Adam Riggs's set, uh, is mostly wooden, like the foundations of a house, but everything is stripped down uh, with wide slats uh, that you can see through in many cases. You can see the light pouring through. And I'm not sure if that's meant to represent a house that's falling down or the light that's shining through, even when people try to block it out. Uh, beautifully done. And the backdrop of the set is it's a curtain of water bottles and you know, filled or half filled or you know, with little bits of brown water, all different hues of water making up this curtain. Uh, it took me a moment when I sat down to realize what I was looking at and just gasped out loud when I saw it. it such a great little set piece. I don't know how long it took the team to create that curtain, but very glad they did. It was amazing to see. Um, and Jeanette, oh, I'm going to mispronounce this. My apologies. Jeanette Oisuk Yu uh, does beautiful work with the lighting as well. Uh, again, sometimes it seems like the set is blocking off the light, trying to hide the clarity, the illumination that the characters are seeking. And she works, her work, work does, uh, God, what's the word I'm looking for? Her lighting works beautifully with the set and uh, with uh, Kara Harmon's costumes to just create that effect of illumination and enlightenment, but also something hidden and obscured and kept buried underneath. The play is just very surreal. It's dreamlike. It's beautiful. And it's horrifying all at the same time. It's not a fun night out at the theater but I really encourage people to see this. I mean, this crisis is still going on. It has not ended. This was supposed to be. This was supposed to be fixed by now. It is appalling that there is a large city with a lot of workers in it, and the people there cannot drink the water, cannot bathe in the water from their own faucets. They have to go out and buy bottles of water in order to stay healthy and safe. It's appalling. And the play really reminds us of these human beings who are struggling like this and they shouldn't be forgotten. They should be remembered. And that's why I would really encourage people catch this play down at the public. I hope it extends. It needs to be seen. It needs to be talked about and people need to take action to get the people of Flint the water they deserve. Okay. Peter, what did you think about colored water? I'm going to review the review. I think that is one of the most eloquent pieces of <laughs> reviewing that I have ever heard, ever, oh, ever, ever. Um, goodness, a terrific way of putting it. The only thing I'm going to add <clears throat> is uh, in, um, a reference to Raisin in the Sun. At the beginning of Raisin in the Sun, what we see is uh, Benita hoping that she can get into the bathroom, uh, that she'll be able, because it's, they don't have a bathroom in their own apartment, it's down the hall and they have to share it with the other neighbors. And that is the big conflict we see at the beginning. And that's not inconsiderable, but compare that to what's going on here. Mm -hmm. And it really shows um, uh, yes. uh, how difficult oh. things are. Things are supposed to improve for people, but notice how it doesn't. Colored water means two things here, not just that the water is brown, but also that this is what 
the water is for people, you should pardon the expression, who, to use that old expression, colored. That's what it is, too. This is the way the government thinks, um, that this is fine water for these people. The hell with them. So a very, very effective play, and Jenna said it beautifully. All right, so that wraps it up for this week. Uh, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayVideo.com. This is a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you'll find Broadway Readings offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Jenna, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? He wanted Tony in each of two musicals to play the same theater. What he said to end the first act of the first show was the same that he said in the second act of the second show, but that time it came in the middle of a song. In a way, mind you, in a way, it served the same purpose. Well, I'm talking about Nathan Lane, who won Tony Awards for two musicals that played the St. James, the revival of Funny Thing Happened on the Way of the Forum, and the producers. At the end of Act One of Forum, Sudalus says, intermission, hmm. announcing to the audience that the act is over. In Act Two of the producers, during the song Betrayed, Max says the word intermission in the middle of the song, which is a summary of what has happened and taken place in the show to that point. Well, what with Paul, Michelle, and Violet Witte en route to Jamaica, the country, <laughs> the country, not Queens, Tony Janicki vaulted back into first place. Paul did chime in later with Nathan Lane and the show's part of the answer, but nothing else. Okay. Yeah, he's on vacation. It's fine. Brigadude followed <laughs> as did Greg Christensen. This week's question. Take the name of a Steven Spielberg movie. Do a little switching within the title. You don't have to add anything. You don't have to subtract anything. Just do a little switching, and you'll come up with the title of a famous composer lyricist's final musical that closed out of town. Okay. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayvideo.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, we started with a boom. <laughs> we did. <laughs> yes, our opening music was 3090 from the soundtrack of Tick, Tick, Boom featuring Andrew Garfield. Uh, the title of the song refers to the fact that Jonathan Larson is turning 30 in 1990 and he feels his clock ticking. Uh, so that's what that all means. Uh, in, the, uh, in the complete version of the track, you will also hear Joshua Henry, who, the aforementioned Joshua Henry, and also Vanessa Hudgens as Caressa, who I, I think I might have failed to mention before, so sorry about that. Uh, and our closing music is a tribute to the great Petula Clark, who turned 89 uh, last week, uh, Monday the 15th, and was a fairly recent guest on our podcast, uh, is currently on stage. I mean, not at the moment, but <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. currently appearing on stage in Mary Poppins in the West End as the the bird woman or bird lady, uh, bird mm -hmm. woman, I guess. Um, and she is obviously one of the greats. And uh, the recording I chose was her recording of Edelweiss. Uh, another one of her stage roles was Maria in The Sound of Music in the West End. Uh, 
uh, but this is a, a separate recording of that beautiful song Edelweiss, and I think you'll agree that she does a beautiful job with it. So, happy 89th birthday, Petula Clark. <laughs> yes, happy 89th. So, on behalf of Peter Felicia, Michael Portantier, and Jenna Tessa Fox, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to your Broadway videos this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Every morning you greet me Small and wild Clean and bright You look happy to me Homeland